I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, I wanted to take some time to discuss what is happening on Capitol Hill this week and what the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer team is up to in terms of trying to pass several big government socialist bills. Today, we're going to talk about the debt ceiling, the infrastructure bill, and the budget resolution bill. Together, infrastructure and resolution could be upwards of 2 to $4 trillion, depending on how the negotiation goes. And the scoring right now for the big government socialist bill, written by Bernie Sanders, is actually $5.5 trillion, if you score it honestly. And the debt ceiling discussion is very much part of this because we can't spend money wildly like the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer team wants to if we don't have the credit to do so. So let's begin with the budget resolution. As a former Speaker of the House, let me start and say that I am awestruck by Pelosi's ability to intimidate, bully, bribe, do whatever is necessary to run a dictatorship with a really tiny majority. I didn't think it was technically possible. And just as a study in the use of power, her speakership will be studied for many years to come as somebody who has built a machine that intimidates people into doing things which are suicidal. I mean, there are a number of Democrats, maybe as many as 40 or 50, who are going to be defeated because they marched right off the plank with Nancy Pelosi, and they're just not going to survive it. But they're doing it anyway because the fear of her today is greater than the fear of the voters 
in November of next year. Schumer's maneuvering against one of the greatest tactical leaders in the history of the Senate. And McConnell, who knows exactly what he's doing. For the last few weeks, Washington Democrats tried to forget that they lined up to oppose debt limit increases during unified Republican government. They pretended these votes are always bipartisan. Well, that was simply not true. So now our colleagues have moved on to yet another new argument that is equally flimsy. Now, they claim they'd be perfectly happy to handle this responsibility with 51 votes done one way, but they'd rather risk the nation's credit than doing it with 51 votes a slightly different way. And I recommend everybody that you read his memoir, The Long Game, to get a sense of how his mind works. McConnell has figured out the strategy he wants. He knows he can impose it, and he's gradually and steadily imposing it. And what he's doing is they're forcing Schumer to take full responsibility on some of these things. And Schumer, who has a number of Democrat senators up who are in very difficult races, really doesn't want them to have to vote the way they're going to have to vote. McConnell, who wants to get back to being majority leader, really wants them to have to vote the way they're going to vote. And so he knows exactly what he's trying to do. And so far, I would say that in the Senate, that McConnell's winning. McCarthy doesn't have the same opportunity in the House because, as I knew when I was Speaker, the House rules mean that if the Speaker has 218 votes, they can do virtually anything. The Senate rules are very different, much harder to manage, and the Senate is designed to be pretty dysfunctional, the theory being that if something isn't so popular that you can overcome the friction and inertia, then it shouldn't pass. So they're very different bodies. They're operating differently. Meanwhile, Biden wavers between occasionally being semi-competent and at times looking like he's just out to lunch. And I think he's gradually eroding in West Virginia, there's a poll that says his approval rate in West Virginia is 18%. That means one out of every five West Virginians approves of Biden. And this is part of the world that Manchin lives in as a former governor and a guy who really understands his state. He knows that four out of five West Virginians are anti-Biden. So there's not much pressure, but the pressure, and I want to talk about this because it's important in understanding legislative bodies. Legislative bodies are very human institutions. They're like clubs, and particularly in the Senate, where there are only 100 members, the psychological pressure being brought on both Manchin and Cinema is astonishing, because while people back home may dislike what he's doing, he's not back home. He's in Washington. And in Washington, he walks into the Democratic caucus, and he's surrounded by all of his, quote, friends, and he wants to be liked. I learned this from Zell Miller. Zell and I had known each other since he was a state senator, and I ran a congressional race as a campaign manager in 1964. So we'd had a very long relationship. He went on to become lieutenant governor, then he became governor, then he became senator, after he was senator, he called me one day and said, would I come by for breakfast? And I said, sure. And this is about 2002 or 2003. And he said, I just want to apologize. And I said, what are you talking about? 
And he said, well, you used to always come home and say that the Democratic caucus was really very radical and that it really put pressure on people. And he said, I'm a loyal Democrat. I spent my whole life in the Democratic Party. I just didn't believe you. He said, now that I've been here, they are so bad and they are so hypocritical and so dishonest that I quit going to the caucus because I saw no reason to sit around and have them attack me. And the result was he went to New York in 2004 and endorsed George W. Bush for president, but he wouldn't switch parties. And this is, I think, part of what's happening with Manchin. The Democratic Party had been Zell Miller's home for his entire life, and he just couldn't bring it to become a Republican. But on the other hand, he couldn't stand the radical Democrats. So the result was that he was a man alone. I think part of the difference is that Zell was a Marine, and he was a mountain person, and he was very used to being alone. He didn't care. Manchin, who pretends to be a mountain person, is actually very sociable. He likes people. He wants to be liked. And you're watching him erode as I talk today. The word is out that he's now gone from $1.5 trillion to $2.2 trillion. We'll see how he continues to erode. He wants to please people. Zell didn't care one whit about pleasing anybody. He cared about doing his duty. He wrote several great books about lessons he learned as a Marine. So they're very different personalities. Cinema seems to be more like Zell Miller, although the truth is she's so quiet and not a public drama person that you really don't know what's going on in her head. She also comes from a very different environment. Arizona has a long tradition of producing people like Barry Goldwater, John McCain, and she, I think, kind of fancies herself in that maverick role of doing what she wants to do. So they're very different. You can apply pressure and you can apply sort of psychological bribery to Manchin. I'm not sure you can do that to cinema. So you ended up over the weekend with activists in the bathroom. I've never seen anything quite like it. I mean, standing outside her toilet as she has closed the door and just waiting for her to come back out, getting it all on film. Solutions to the Build Back Better plan need as the solutions that we need. We knocked on doors for you to get you elected, and just how we got you elected, we can get you out of office if you don't support what you promised us. We need seven million citizenship for seven million. We need the Build Back Better plan right now. <laughs> My name is Blanca. I was brought here to the United States when I was three years old. And in 2010, my grandparents both got deported because of SB 1070. And I'm here because I definitely believe that we need a pathway to citizenship. My grandfather passed away two weeks ago, and I was not able to go to Mexico and visit him because there is no pathway to citizenship. And if we have the opportunity to pass it right now, then we need to do it because there's millions of undocumented people just like me who share the same story. No sense of this is harassment. It's actually a felony in Arizona to do what they were doing. Then she just calmly ignored them and went off. Meanwhile, Manchin, sitting on his houseboat in Washington, is surrounded by radicals and kayaks, which is sort of somehow appropriate. There's a lot of poverty. What are you going to do for the poor in West Virginia? We're going to be working everything we can to create good opportunities. And we need to tax the rich. Oh, I agree with that. I definitely agree. That's the one number thing we should be doing is fixing the tax code so everybody pays their fair share. We should be also negotiating for lower drug prices. 
We should be doing all these things. I agree with you 1,000%. We're on the same page, gang. We really are. And they're all yelling at him about West Virginia, and they love West Virginia. Won't he vote radical for West Virginia, even though the state itself has rejected that by, as I said earlier, by about four to one. So Manchin may be slipping in. It's conceivable by the time you're listening to this that they found some resolution. The challenge they've got is that Bernie Sanders doesn't want to go below $3.5 trillion. The radicals in the House don't want to go below $3.5 trillion. Well, that's not going to happen. So it's going to be somewhere. Why won't it add up to that? Because that's too small to get our priorities in. So it's going to be somewhere, you know, between 1.5 and 3.5. And remember, the word progressive is totally misleading. These people are all big government socialists. It's a radical wing of big government socialism. And there is a timid wing. I wrote a newsletter recently on the timid versus the bold. But they're all, as you can tell by mention, I mean, if they'd come in with a $2.2 trillion bill, we'd have thought that was a big bill. Now Manchin wants us to think, oh, this is the moderate conservative bill. Baloney. The moderate conservative position is zero. He also has said he will not vote for anything that doesn't include the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is a very famous right-to-life amendment that says that no taxpayer money can be used to pay for abortion. Well, the left will never vote to have the Hyde Amendment in this bill. So I don't know whether Manchin was setting up the excuse for ultimately voting no, or whether Manchin was just setting up a bargaining chip that if he dropped it, they had to pay him with something. But the whole thing is a mess. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so 
there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So here's where they are. The Democrats have to pass a debt ceiling or the credit of the United States crumbles. That has never happened in our history. We actually have only had debt ceilings since about 1939. Prior to 1939, every bond issue was approved by the Congress, except in World War I, where they gave a blanket approval to issue debt. In 1939, faced with FDR's New Deal and the rise of the federal debt, they established a limit which I think at the time was about $65 billion. Imagine that compared to what we now spend. So they had created for the first time the requirement that in order to borrow more than that, Congress had to raise the debt ceiling. So we have been involved in that dance for over 80 years. Now, that's in principle got to be solved. The question is, when does the Treasury run out of money? They always lie. I went through several of these when I was in Congress. They always lie. They always tell you they're going to run out of money when they secretly have another week or two left because they so totally distrust the politicians that they're afraid if they told you the real date, you'd wait till you got right up on the edge of it. So the Democrats are under huge pressure to raise the debt ceiling because we have never, ever failed to meet our debt obligations. And if we did, the effect on markets around the world would be just staggering. And Biden can't stand that. That would just crush his presidency. Second, the so-called infrastructure bill, which is part federal highway money, part new ideas involving public transportation. Amtrak is maybe the worst railroad in the industrial world. So, of course, we're going to give it another $100 billion because Biden always wrote it to and from Wilmington. And then they have a bunch of social programs thrown in. The Republicans, I think, sold out much too easily in the Senate and 18 of them voted for it, so it's, quote, bipartisan. That's sitting there at an estimated $1.2 trillion. And what's happened is the hard left has said they will not vote for that until they get the $3.5 trillion bill that Bernie Sanders wrote, 
which, of course, you probably already know, is about a $5.5 trillion bill if you count it honestly. Now, what do I mean by count it honestly? Well, let's say you put in a child tax credit, but you only fund it for three years. Well, what CBO will say is, this is going to survive. This is going to become permanent. They're not going to repeal this. So they score it for 10 years. All of a sudden, the hidden real cost of the bill jumps dramatically. And they did this over and over again because they wanted more goodies than they could pay for. And so they basically wrote a whole series of short-term programs that they know will be renewed, but that they just couldn't come out with a $5.5 trillion bill and not be laughed out of town. Now, Bernie, of course, originally had a $6 trillion bill. He thinks he's already compromised by coming down from the socialist fantasy of $6 trillion to a mere $3.5 trillion. I don't know how he will react as it begins to be obvious that they could end up getting nothing. And so he may decide that $2.2 trillion with Manchin beats zero, which is where they were drifting towards. On the other hand, the hardliners in the House may decide that they're simply not going to move unless they get their bill first. So they want it's called the budget resolution bill, but it's really the $3.5 trillion or honest counting $5.5 trillion big government socialist bill written, of course, by a big government socialist, Bernie Sanders. If they hang tough, their position is they will not vote for the infrastructure bill until they get their bill. Now, the moderates are not going to vote for their bill until they get the infrastructure bill. And Pelosi has had to postpone the vote several times now on the infrastructure bill for a very practical reason. She does not have the votes. So now you've come here about what else comes next. We have two items that, well, the, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the BIF, and, of course, the, reconcil- the reconciliation. I just told my, uh, members of my leadership that the reconciliation bill was a culmination of my service in Congress because it was about the children, the children, the children, the children, their health, it's about health, education, the economic security of their families, a clean, safe environment in which they could thrive, and, and I guess a world at peace in which they could succeed. This is more about the domestic for, first poor parts, of, poor parts of that. So remove all doubt in anyone's mind that we will not have a reconciliation. We will have a reconciliation bill. That is for sure. The, today, the question is about uh, we are proceeding in a very positive way to bring up the bill of the BIF, to do so in a way that can win. And so far, so good for today. It's going in a positive direction. It's impossible, though, to persuade people to vote for the BIF without the reassurances that the re- reconciliation bill will occur, and it will. And, it, and that we cannot, because of rules of the Senate in terms of parliamentarian having to pass on any bill before it comes to the floor and pass on any language, we cannot really guarantee what I'd hoped in terms of uh, having a more legislative form. And the Republicans have been working very hard to convince their members, about 10 of them, actually like the infrastructure stuff, which includes a fair amount of money for Louisiana for hurricane damage. They have convinced them, apparently, not to vote until the Democrats produce 218 votes. So Pelosi can't rely on a handful of Republicans to bail her out. And so she keeps postponing the vote because she doesn't have the votes. 
Now, the big government socialist bill that Bernie wrote includes money for a universal pre-K child care for higher education, $107 billion to create a pathway to legal status for illegal immigrants, $135 billion for forest fires, carbon emission levels and droughts, $332 billion for public housing, and $198 billion for clean energy development. This is a bill which is sort of a socialist dream. Sanders has said it would be the biggest expansion of government since FDR in the 1930s. As chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, I am proud to introduce a $3.5 trillion budget resolution. This is a budget resolution that will allow the Senate to move forward on a reconciliation bill that, in my view, will be the most consequential and comprehensive piece of legislation for working people, for the elderly, for the children, for the sick, and for the poor that this body has addressed since Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the New Deal, and the 1930s. So he sees it as an extraordinarily consequential bill. And the Democrats find themselves now in a real mess because they may have gone further than they can go. Sometimes when you end up in a situation like this, you have to be careful not to let your appetite get bigger than your paycheck. And I think that that may be where they are. The other thing to remember, though, is that the radicals are already playing and maneuvering for the world after Pelosi. So they see proving their muscle as a key part of this. But I think it's important to recognize that when you argue over this bill, it's useful to look at what Sanders and Schumer said when they introduced the original bill for $3.5 trillion. We do not have the luxury of using a drawn-out, convoluted, and risky process. We could prevent a catastrophic default with a simple majority vote tomorrow. If Republicans would just get out of the damn way, we could get this all done. We're not asking them to vote to raise the debt ceiling. That's what they asked us. That's what McConnell asked for three months. Let Democrats vote for it. If they got out of the way, that's just what could happen. One of the questions that everybody is going to ask is, well, how is this going to be paid for? Expensive bill. Three and a half trillion dollars, you know, that's a lot of money. It is. Well, I happen to think, and I know that you do as well, Madam President, that maybe, just maybe, the time is now for the wealthiest people in this country and the largest corporations who are doing phenomenally well, but in a given year, many of them have not paid a nickel in federal income tax. Ah, the average Joe, the average Mary out there, they're working. They're paying their fair share of taxes. But if you're an Amazon, if you're a Jeff Bezos, if you're one of these multi-billionaires, you got lobbyists, you got accountants, you got lawyers, and you can avoid paying your fair share of taxes. Now, in response to all of that, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which is the hardline left-wingers, along with a number of Democrats in the Senate, came out very strongly they said. We did want even more, of course. Uh, we want that that outlay. We would like that outlay to be $6 trillion so that we're spending, uh, you know, 
ideally 10, you know, having that 10 trillion and then having potentially those outlays that bring us back to a 6 trillion point. Um, 10 trillion is also the number that we wanted to get for a Green New Deal. But at the same time, the moderates are going the other way. Senator Manchin talked to reporters on September 30th on why he was against the $3.5 trillion bill. If you had X amount of dollars in your paycheck and you wanted to buy something, and that what you wanted to buy was not affordable right now, you'd save up and buy it later. That's all I'm saying. So what's our priorities? Children, pre-K. I'm strong on pre-K. Child care, child tax credits, we can do that. But do that in a, in a, in a compassionate way, targeted. You have basically the, mean, the medium income is $68,000 in America. Can't we use targeted? You have 90 million people that have, they file tax returns for $50,000 or less. Let's target it. I don't think a person that's making two, three, four hundred thousand are in as much need as a person on the lower end. If you have X amount, who do you help? In that same time period, he told National Review that the bill would be dead on arrival if it took out the Hyde Amendment. The depth of the mentions commitments are going to be very interesting to watch. At the same time, the hardline progressives, the left-wingers, dug in, and Representative Jayapal of Washington, who's the leader of that group, said in response to the question of $1.5 trillion as the baseline. Now, remember, we used to think a $1.5 trillion bill was a huge bill. They now think of it as chump change unworthy of themselves. And then the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has been playing a very weird zigzag game. The U.S. Chamber had for years been a bulwark of the Republican Party. And a couple years ago, its leadership decided that they needed to sell out to Democrats and start helping Democrats. And so they supported a number of Democrats in 2020 and worked with the Democrats. And, of course, as always happens, after the Democrats patted them on the head and said they were nice, they promptly turned around and began passing things that the chamber can't possibly be for. The chamber hung in there. It was for the infrastructure bill. It was against the socialist big government bill. But the pressures built, and when the two bills were combined, and when the House Republicans, and what I thought was a very gutsy move by uh, Kevin McCarthy, simply kicked them out, said, you cannot be part of our strategy group. We don't trust you. We don't think you're reliable. All of a sudden, the Chamber of Commerce began to find its ideological roots again. And so they issued a statement that opposed any effort to link the two bills. Finally, you have to look at how the activist left has responded to all this. I think the scene which was shown on television again and again of radicals chasing cinema into the ladies' room, standing outside her stall after she closed the door, yelling at her through the door, is astonishing. Biden, in his usual destructive way, remember this is the guy who was going to bring us together, when he was asked about it, he just shrugged it off and said, oh, it happens to everybody, which is, by the way, a lie. But this is what he actually said. I don't think they're appropriate tactics, but it happens to everybody. From the, <laughs> the only people it doesn't happen to are people who have Secret Service standing around them. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's part of the process. Yeah. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. 
Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So now you have a mess involving the reconciliation bill, as it's called, I would call it a big government socialist bill, authored by Bernie Sanders, who is a big government socialist, and the infrastructure bill, which is about 60% infrastructure, 
and 40% left-wing ideas. That's a mess. Then the debt ceiling is a mess. And here, what the real maneuvering is over, there's no question that the Democrats could pass raising the debt ceiling in reconciliation, which would be a process which allowed them to do it with only Democratic votes. 50 Democrats plus the vice president could pass it under reconciliation in the rules of the Senate. However, they have two problems. One is they don't want to admit how much they're going to raise it to. I mean, they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling, I suspect, to almost $20 trillion or maybe more than $20 trillion. So in that circumstance, the current debt ceiling actually would be $28.5 trillion. If they raise it much above that, imagine you are somebody like the junior senator from Arizona who is trying to run for re-election next year as though he's not a radical, and now he's going to vote for this giant number, and he's going to be right there. He can't get away from it. And yet the pressure from the Biden administration is enormous. On July 23rd, the Secretary of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, sent a letter to the congressional leadership. And in July, the Congressional Budget Office estimated that unless the debt limit is increased, the Treasury will probably be unable to make its payments starting sometime in October or November. I think people now believe it's probably in November because the Treasury always has a handful of gimmicks that they don't want to talk about that gives them a little bit more time. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, remember, Janet Yellen was the chair of the Federal Reserve, so she understands all of this from the standpoint of what is the Federal Reserve going to do if all of a sudden it can't issue any debt? And so she wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed, which really raised this question again. But in response to all that pressure, on October 4th, Mitch McConnell sent a letter to Biden about the debt ceiling. And on October 4th, Mitch McConnell delivered remarks on the debt ceiling on the Senate floor. For the last few weeks, Washington Democrats tried to forget that they lined up to oppose debt limit increases during unified Republican government. They pretended these votes are always bipartisan. Well, that was simply not true. So now our colleagues have moved on to yet another new argument that is equally flimsy. Now, they claim they'd be perfectly happy to handle this responsibility with 51 votes done one way, but they'd rather risk the nation's credit than doing it with 51 votes a slightly different way. So I think what you've got here is a debt ceiling problem, the debt ceiling, the reconciliation, infrastructure, and by December 3rd, they've got to pass a new continuing resolution to keep the government running because they only passed one to keep it open until December 3rd. All these things are swirling around. And remember, the pressures that are building that are outside. You have, for all the hostilities shown to cinema in the ladies' room or shown to Manchin on his houseboat, remember the kind of attitude we're seeing at Talladega, at the college football games in Michigan yesterday, at the New York Education Board, I mean, the number of people now who are saying really vicious things or are showing a single-finger salute to Biden, which is what they were doing in Michigan as his motorcade went by. I mean, there's a level of hostility building in this country that I think is a little scary. I think it is a really remarkable time 
and worth your paying attention. So I hope you found this a little bit useful in trying to explain if the situation looks like it's a mess, that's a sign you accurately understand it. It is a mess, and it's a mess in part because they tried to do more than they could. They allowed it all to jam up against itself, and they now have all these different things that are hard coming at the same time, which is always dangerous. When I was Speaker, we tried to space out change, so we did welfare reform at one point. We did Food and Drug Administration reform at another point. We did balancing the budget at yet a third point. We did a tax cut at a fourth point, but we would never have allowed all these things to jam into one big mess. And I think it's going to be fascinating. I cannot tell you how it's going to come out. All I can tell you is that it's well worth your paying attention because this is real history. This isn't just politics. This is the kind of stuff that really changes everything. Let me just say that I have great admiration for the way in which Mitch McConnell has outmaneuvered Schumer, and I think he's exactly right. And I also believe that what Kevin McCarthy is doing in the House is exactly right. And I really admire the fact that Kevin had the nerve to kick the U.S. Chamber of Commerce out because they've deserved it. They're not allies. they got to decide what their identity is. And if their identity is a big government collaboration with big government socialists, that's one thing. If their identity is that they fight for free enterprise and they fight for the business community, that's another. Their Washington leadership is totally confused about what they're doing. So I admire both McCarthy and McConnell. I believe that the radicalism of the big government socialists from day one has blocked the Republicans. I mean, they took the credit card. They ran around spending it. They've run up all the bills. And now they're turning to us and saying, we have to help pay off their bills. I don't think so. Everything they've written, they've written in secret. We have no idea. I'm not even sure they finished writing yet the $5.5 trillion big government socialist bill by Bernie Sanders but we're supposed to somehow bail them out. I think that the position of the Republicans ought to be that we are the loyal opposition. They ought to establish a set of really significant conditions. You want our help on the debt ceiling? Drop the $3.5 trillion bill. Shrink the infrastructure bill so it's only infrastructure. Take out all of your radical ideas. If they're not going to do that, they get to carry it. But I think Republicans... We now are ahead in the generic ballot, that is, which party are you likely to vote for? We're moving towards the kind of margin we had in 2014 when we picked up 63 seats. I think, as I said earlier, in West Virginia, Biden is at 18 percent approval. Iowa, he's at 31 percent approval. In Arizona with cinema, he's at 39 percent approval. I don't think we have an obligation to bail them out. They are clearly big government socialists in foreign policy. They're either remarkably incompetent or remarkably cowardly. Things like the way they left Afghanistan are a disgrace and a blot on America's honor. And I don't think we have any obligation to pretend that we're all happy people on the same team and we're going to help row the canoe. This is their canoe. They get to row it as it takes on water, and they get to bail it out as the water starts to sink it. We ought to sit off to one side on our little houseboat, much like Manchin's houseboat, and we ought to have a nice Republican houseboat and watch them drown. And I think by next summer, the American people will be so irritated, they'll be glad to help them drown. So at that point, you'll have a Republican House and a Republican Senate, and we can start going after things like this outrageous position by the attorney general that the FBI is going to monitor parents who go to school board meetings. 
I mean, we, you know, we can't monitor terrorists. We can't monitor Chinese. We can't monitor the Russians. But boy, if you're a parent complaining because your school is teaching your child something which is crazy, you're dangerous. I think you'll find a Republican House and a Republican Senate will spend a fair amount of time discovering just how crazy these people are and beginning to reverse the craziness. I'm very much in favor of the general strategy that McConnell and McCarthy have undertaken. Thank you for listening. You can read more about what is happening on Capitol Hill this week on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.